Today's episode of This Week on Broadway is supported by Heartbeat Opera. If you're a fan of Shakespeare, opera, or drag queens, or all of the above, then you don't want to miss the Heartbeat Opera's upcoming show. The indie opera company called Bold and Vivid by the New York Times returns for their annual Halloween drag extravaganza. This year's theme, All the World's a Drag, Shakespeare in Love with Opera. Join Heartbeat Opera for a fun night of eye-popping Elizabethan fashion, dazzling musical performances, and Halloween revelries. The show returns for just two nights, October 30th and 31st, at the National Sawdust in Brooklyn. Tickets on sale now at heartbeatopera.org. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios This Week on Broadway for Sunday, October 29th, 2017. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Jenna Tessa Fox and Michael Portantier. Jenna is a theater writer and a reviewer whose articles have appeared at Time Out New York, Playbill, Broadway World, and NewYorkTheaterGuide.com. Good morning, Jenna. Good morning, James. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you. You know, as much as you can be on this... Uh, rainy, miserable, fall-like day where my Penn State Nittany Lions lost by one point to Matt Tamanini's Ohio State, uh, whatever uh, they are. No! I'm going to have to pay for that tomorrow or in the upcoming weeks. Matt's coming into New York to visit and see some shows and things like that, and I was really hoping not to have to put up with a loss. So oh. We'll have to see what happens. Oh, also with bad. us, the other voice you're hearing <laughs> is Michael Bortantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist and chief New York theater critic at Talkin' Broadway. He is also a theatrical photographer whose, whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So Peter is... I want to say that he's in Ohio. I'm not sure. I think he's at CCM. I'm not, I'm not sure, but uh, never fear. He's going to join us later to give us some trivia answers and a new question. So uh, don't fear that we've missed out on that, but he'll be back next week. <laughs> Let's start off with uh, a review of The Portuguese Kid. Jenna and Michael both saw The Portuguese Kid, which is over at MTC at uh, New York City Center on stage one. So Jenna, why don't you start us off with that? Okay, thank you. Um, Portuguese kid, John Patrick Shanley as playwright and director. John Patrick Shanley has a Pulitzer. Uh, he has a Pulitzer. I keep reminding myself of that fact because this play is not Pulitzer material. Uh, this is this is certainly not up to the level of doubt. This is not even up to the level of Outside Mullingar, which was at least a cute little romantic comedy. This uh, this play feels like a really poor sitcom dragged out for ninety minutes. Uh, the play follows some incredibly shallow, vapid characters as they fight over money and real estate and uh, cheating, basically, since uh, several of them are connected romantically. Uh, that's really about it. It feels like a bad episode of a poorly written sitcom with cliches that would have seen old and dated back in the 60s. All of the humor is based on ethnicity. Uh, most of the characters are Italian. One is Greek. And Shanley goes out of his way to remind us of their ethnicities multiple times in the script. <laughs> Or it's based on sexist cliches that the women are all shallow gold diggers uh, and the men are all 
brainless and can be just led around by a pretty woman dominating them. Uh, and one character goes out of his way to talk about how much he hates Portuguese people several times throughout the play, hence the title of the play, uh, even though no Portuguese characters actually appear in this on the stage. Uh, it's a first-rate cast. Uh, I'm kind of amazed that uh, Jason Alexander, Sherry Renee Scott, Mary Testa, I mean, these um, great names in the theater that they signed on for this. Uh, Pico Alexander and Amy Carrero uh, round up the five-person cast. They all do good work, but there's only so much they can do with such a shallow script. It doesn't really give them chances to show off their, their stuff. Mary Testa, I think, gets the best opportunity to break out and just be funny. But again, a lot of her humor is based on being the shrill, overbearing mother. And we are, I think we can put a moratorium on the shrill, overbearing mother back in Bye Bye Birdie. Uh, it's been done. It's over. It's old. Can we move on? Uh, Got to give some credit, though, to John Lee Beatty for the sets and William Ivy Long for the costumes. They do some really nice work. The set rotates from scene to scene. And Beatty does some really nice work with uh, in a fairly small stage and making it into a lot of different places very nicely. But there's only so much you can do with such a shallow and, frankly, offensive script. And I just really could not recommend this piece uh, in spite of the top-tier cast and the quality of the, the team involved in this. It just boggles my mind that the final product is so offensive, quite frankly, that no one at any point said, this really doesn't work and this needs another, revi- uh, this needs another revision hmm. before it's ready for the stage. So rather disappointing. I hope this incredibly talented team can do better with their next endeavor because this one just didn't do it. Okay, Michael, what did you think? Yeah, I had heard actually a good report about this play from uh, a friend, but I I can't agree. I I agree with Jenna. Um, Thanks for mentioning the set. It's actually quite incredible. There are four complete different sets on the stage of uh, Manhattan Theater Club Stage 1, which is uh, I I didn't even know they had that ability, to be honest. So, uh, yes, bravo to John Lee Beatty. There are some some superficial reminiscences between this play and Moonstruck, uh, Shanley's incredibly great screenplay for Moonstruck, but um, only only superficial. Everything that worked in that does not really work here and it's it's just a pale imitation i mean there is some there's actually some mention of the moon some talk of the moon and there are these you know ethnic characters with big emotions and all these uh people who we wonder if they're going to get together they they might be mismatched in the beginning and are are they going to stay mismatched or not uh so there are as i say superficial reminiscences but but this this play uh is nowhere near the quality of that screenplay. And Shanley, I, I, um, it's been pointed out many times, this has been terribly inconsistent as a playwright um, and I guess as a screenwriter too, but, but especially as a playwright, he uh, Doubt is a great play, for example, and he had yeah. some earlier, earlier plays that were really excellent. But this one, I, I just really did not like it and i thought it was very very shrill and forced um i also uh the the central character i guess you'd say is, is named 
Atalanta Lagana, and she's played by Sherry Renee Scott. And it's supposed to be a reference to the Greek myth of Atalanta. And Shanley even has a note in the program about that, but I frankly don't really see that. No. <laughs> you know, so I, you know, uh, if you see this play, read that note and tell me if you see the point, because I don't, I don't quite get the analogy, um, just in a very, in very broad terms. Um, one thing I noticed about this play is I, I wonder if it was written very recently or revised very recently, because there's a great deal of talk about, well, not that much, but quite a bit about uh, Trump and who did or did not vote for him. Uh, it turns out that that, well, you know, maybe some of the characters voted for him, even though they they sort of pretending that they didn't. Uh, so I, it'd be interesting to find out um, how much of that was added recently and or if the, the whole play was well, I can't, can't imagine the whole thing was put together from scratch since uh since the election, but maybe, well, you know, Trump, of course, was in the news before he was actually elected. So maybe, maybe they just, maybe Shanley revised the outcome, which uh, we wish he hadn't had to do that. Anyway, um, uh, Jason Alexander uh, is, plays uh, Atalanta's lawyer, Barry Dragonetti, and he's quite good with what, you know, what, what he's given to do. And I have to say, I have to give him credit. He does a stunt or a, um, a pratfall towards the very end of the play that that made me and several people in the audience gasp. He basically falls on a chair. I can't quite explain it, but um, I don't know how he does that uh, every night without, you know, really seriously risking injury. So, um, so that will impress you <laughs> if you if you see this play. Uh, and and Mary Testa does as as Jenna said, wish what she can with a with a very 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 cliched character. But uh, I'm I was I was not happy, and it was not uh, what I had heard from from a friend. I I don't know. Maybe you have to be in the right mood. There was quite a bit of laughter from from. Some of the audience, I, you know, I, 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 it's, it behooves me to say. So uh, maybe you'll be with those people and not with me and Jenna. But that's that's how I felt, and I guess that's how we felt. So um, I'm glad, Jenna, you brought it up. That such an outstanding cast and uh, and a group of people of directors and writers that are all like amazing work. And we talked about this with Matt on today on Broadway uh, about this is a prime example of on paper, this should be just amazing. And it hasn't seemed to come together in the, in the same way that we would expect. And this, this is why we go see these shows because sometimes they can absolutely amaze us. And sometimes it's a real dud and you never really know when you're, reading up on these things i've used this example before you know we're going to have a rap musical about alexander hamilton and it's the biggest (laughs) thing ever to happen on broadway and people would be like oh you are kidding me that's Mm -hmm. or you know we're going to have uh a 60 year old rock and roll artist come play a concert on broadway and it's going to be like a thousand dollars a ticket and people are like no it's never going to happen and we just don't we just don't know if we did know we'd be uh, phoning it in from our yachts in the caribbean right 
I mean, I am on my yacht in the Caribbean, but still. Well, I didn't want to blow your cover, Jenna, but there you are. Okay. There we are. I no, I agree you, uh, with you. You uh, took the helicopter off the yacht and went up to uh, Harlem to see the Colored Museum by George C. Uh, with George C. Wolf. Uh, with George C. Wolf, yes, Georgie and I, we go way back. Absolutely. Yes. So tell us about the Colored Museum. Yes, uh, I was very excited to see this. Uh, a friend of mine, I should be upfront and honest about this, a friend of mine is in the production and she invited me to come check it out. Uh, the play feels so incredibly timely. It premiered in the 80s uh, in New Jersey, of all places, at uh, Crossroads Theatre Company. And then it went to uh, the public theater. And it's now 30 years later, it's being revived by Harlem Repertory Theatre, uh, all the way over in East Harlem. And the play feels so incredibly timely and so incredibly necessary with the conversations the country has been having over the past uh, few years. It feels very important to revive this piece. The show is a series of sketches discussing black culture, black history, different facets of black culture and history. But one of the problems is uh, by having sketches that are discussing these different issues, uh, we don't get to go really deep into the into those issues. Uh, the scenes are, you know, maybe 15 minutes at the absolute most, and quite a lot of them are even shorter. And all of them bring up some really valid and important points, and I kind of wish they could be expanded into longer scenes. And I also really wish uh, Wolf would revisit this piece and either update them for the contemporary conversations that we've been having, or add new scenes that uh, different productions could pick and choose what scenes they want to include uh, in productions. Uh, this production is directed by Keith Lee Grant, and it, it's really fascinating because in the program, it talks about uh, different galleries that uh, different scenes take place in. The audience is moved around the theater we're told, you know, we come in, we sit in the main theater space, and the first few scenes happen, and then we're told, come onto the stage. There are some chairs there, we sit in those chairs, and we watch another few scenes. Then we go back into the audience, and then we're moved to another section of the audience, and we're moved around from space to space, which really breaks up the tension, and it breaks up the mood. It doesn't help the narrative, it doesn't help the flow of the different scenes. And I'm not sure, since he's talking about different galleries in the Colored Museum, if this production was meant to be more, uh, what's sort I'm looking for, if it was meant to be more of an interactive piece where the audience could freely move from space to space to see different scenes take place. Um, if so I'm not really sure why they're called different galleries when we're just in, all moving around one large room. Uh, it, I kind of wish they'd scrap that concept and just have the actors on the stage doing their scenes and leave the audience sitting in their seats uh, or take it much farther and really have separate rooms and different galleries where we could wander around and see the different scenes. Uh, that could be very effective as well. But right now it feels sort of halfway done by making the, the audience move around the auditorium uh, altogether. It takes too long, it breaks up the flow, it, it just doesn't quite gel. So 
if Mr. Grant is listening, I, I hope that's something to, to reconsider. The cast does some very, very nice work. These are all non-equity performers, uh, but they do really nice work. Natalia uh, Perguero, Paula Galloway, Barbara Lee No, Amanda Hargrove, uh, Robert Guzman, and Eric Miles. It's a cast of six, uh, four women, two men. They play a very wide range of characters, and they do some really great work uh, shifting from role to role. Again, with a series of sketches, it's hard to build up a full three-dimensional character in just five to 15 minutes. So the cast deserves a lot of credit for uh, for being able to do that so well with very limited time. Uh Got to give a shout out. I'm looking for the names. Oh, uh, Bernard Johnson is the stage manager. And from what I could see from where I was sitting, uh, Bernard Johnson was also handling the lights and sound and moving the audience from space to space. So cheers to a very determined stage manager. I I would have to complain that it was sometimes difficult to hear the actors over the... uh, The ambient noise, uh, they were not mic'd, which I always love. I love hearing the natural voice, but uh, it was difficult to hear over some of the the sound effects and other ambient noise from outside the theater. So maybe some body mics would uh, would be helpful here. In any case, the production is very good. It's running for a while. I'm not sure how long it's going. It's in rep with another bunch of productions, Jamaica... Uh, Wizard of Oz, In the Heights, Raisin in the Sun. All these shows are running in rep at Harlem Repertory Theater for the next several months. So I really recommend seeing this. Uh, It was not lost on me when I came out of the theater. I checked Twitter to see what are the trending topics. And there was a White Lives Matter rally in Tennessee, apparently yesterday while I was watching the show. So it's really timely. It's really important that we see black stories told by black writers and with an all-black cast, this is really timely and important right now. And I really hope people come to see it and talk about it. And I hope it extends and becomes a regular part of Harlem Rep's uh, run. It's a, it's a really important piece. A friend of mine uh, who is no longer an actor but used to be an actor, I think, was in the original production. I'm going to have to oh, cool. make sure he knows about this one. Yeah, it's it's definitely worth seeing. It's I mean... It's a non-equity repertory company, so of course you're not. You can't expect the same thing that we'd see at the public theater. But they do some really nice work, and again, it's an important piece for people to see and discuss. I just hope that the uh, the direction smooths out uh, with more. I think I saw the fourth performance, so they've only been doing this a little bit. Um, it's it's an important piece to see. I keep saying that, but it really just hit me when I walked out of the theater, turned on my phone, and just saw what was happening at this rally. And it was just so disheartening to come from this very empowering, impassioned piece. And then to see, oh, yeah, the hate and the oppression, it's still absolutely going on. And this needs to be talked about. Mm-hmm. Jenna, uh, a few questions. Yes. Um, do you know if the same cast is performing in their other shows in rep? Or- yes. Yes. The cast is doing a few of the other shows. I'm not sure who is in which because yeah. the program is just for this one production. Uh, but yes, I know some of the actors are in some of the other shows. I mean, uh, it seems uh, they got Jamaica and The Wizard of Oz and Raisin in the Sun, In the Heights. Uh, in the Heights has some... Uh, 
dates coming up in November and December and January, actually, and people don't get to see In the Heights right now uh, that easily. So, uh, and the Colored Museum is the last one in rep uh, on the Harlem Repertory Theater dot com website. Uh, that's really exciting, and it is, yeah. Even you know, it's a very ambitious undertaking uh, for a, a you know a theater that is a non equity theater, and um, it needs to get support in order to do uh, so many aggressive shows like this, and that's great. I love that. Absolutely. Yes. And I would, I hope people go see the show and again, it will be running for several months. So any, any word if George Wolf, uh, um, did any revision to the script? I don't know. I have no idea. I looked on, I looked up the, uh, the show on Wikipedia and the sketches seem to be the same from what was done in the eighties. And I mean, they, and some of them do feel very timely and contemporary, but there are quite a few bits that feel dated. It's a 30-year-old script, and the conversation has changed in those 30 years. Uh, there's also a lot of multimedia in this production. There are projections on back walls. Uh, the, I shouldn't say back walls, the back wall. Uh, some of the projections are more effective than others, but there's a, the end of Act One is gut-wrenching. I don't want to spoil what it is. But the woman sitting next to me, a white woman sitting next to me at the theater as the house lights came up for intermission, just gasped out, wow, wow. And she stood up and just murmured, excuse me, walked into the aisle and just walked up out of the theater into the lobby, just kept repeating, wow, wow, wow. So it it can be very, very effective. And there are parts of it that are a little uneven. Some scenes and moments are stronger than others, but that's, you know, that's any show. You're going to have scenes that are stronger than others. Uh, there's a really powerful bit with uh, a woman who sort of seems to be analogous to Josephine Baker and, you know, the, the black musicians who are so lauded, but then used up and spat out. And uh, people talking about uh, the Nicki Minaj's of the world, the uh, Beyonce's and seeing how, they're used by white producers to bring in money. But if they try to talk about real issues, they get silenced. And that she talks about similar issues in this one scene. And again, that was written 30 years ago, but it felt very timely to hear about, you know, Beyonce talking about feminism and people saying, don't talk about that, just sing pretty songs. Mm. All right. So that is uh, the Colored Museum playing at Harlem Repertory Theater. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Um, Michael, you got uh, to see the revival of M. Butterfly at the court. So tell us uh, about M. Butterfly. Yes, I suppose revisal is the better term. And that leads me to my first point. This production is directed by Julie Taymor. And I have to say, um, in some pre-opening interviews, two separate interviews that I saw, she came across as, I have to say, very arrogant in talking about the play and the production, she said something to the effect of how she would not have wanted to direct the script that she saw originally on Broadway in 1988, the David David Henry Wong script, that uh, the original version that was on Broadway in 1988 with uh, starring John Lithgow and B.D. Wong. Um, She said she wouldn't have been interested in that. She only would be interested in doing the play if 
if Wang revised it. Uh, so, I mean, I think that's, you know, I mean, you can feel that way, but to say it, it, it kind of in an interview is is something else again. And she, if she, you know, she could have said it in a different way if she had to say it at all. But anyway, and then she also um, said, went on at quite a length about how uh, visually creative and arresting and different this production was going to be. And she said something like, I don't think anyone has even thought of doing this play this way in 30 years. So I don't know. I think she set herself up and uh, for a fall, which uh, apparently, uh, depending on who you read, has has happened. After I wrote my review, I read the New York Times review, which was extremely negative for this production. Um, and I, I, I guess the other reviews, if, if I understand correctly, are mixed, but there are, there's a lot of bad in there. Um, this play, uh, for those who don't know, it is based on the incredible true story of a French diplomat who has a lengthy romantic and sexual affair with a Chinese opera star, uh, a male Chinese opera star, because all, all performers in Chinese operas are, are male, or at least were at the time. Um, and without apparently knowing that this woman, uh, what he thinks is a woman, is, is actually a man. And, uh, and one of the uh, revisions, uh, apparently, of, of this new version is that um, in the original script, Wang didn't include uh, many or any details of, of how <laughs> it's possible that this could have happened, that uh, this uh, this French diplomat who in the play is called René Gallimard, how uh, he could have had this long-lasting romantic and sexual affair with Song Li Ling and, and not realized that uh, he that song is in fact a man um, but in this revised version there is a, a, a act to courtroom scene because um, Gallimard gets winds up being on trial for espionage and that's a whole other story but there's an act to courtroom scene in which uh, Song Li Ling uh, played by Jin Ha by the way um, explains exactly how uh, this uh, this uh, uh, charade, this uh, this uh, deception was pulled off. And, and I guess the details of that are taken from the true story. Uh, so if, uh, I, I'm of two minds about whether to include that information. I, on the one hand, uh, a lot of people would say it's not necessary. Uh, but on the other hand, I guess one could say that if you don't if it's not explained and, and the audience keeps wondering how it, how uh, he did it, <laughs> um, that maybe that might be distracting. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm not sure you'll, you can make up your own mind if you see this production. I was uh, – anyway, uh, two things. I was very surprised and – disappointed at the visual elements in the production when I actually saw it because they sounded far less creative and elaborate than than Tamor herself said they would be in these pre-opening interviews. And I almost wonder if some of the effects and scenery were cut back at the last moment because I had heard a report or two of technical problems in, uh, I guess, some of the final previews before the press was invited. Uh, so uh, that's, that's sheer speculation, but I, I'm, I only bring it up because it really does not sound like the production she described. There, there, 
there isn't much in the way of um, visual interest, except in these Chinese opera sequences, which are, uh, you know, in terms of costumes and uh, the color colors and 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 they're they're fairly elaborate. I guess fairly elaborate is the term. And uh, those scenes are a lot more extended than they were in the original. If if they were there at all, they were just, uh, I think, a few snippets of Chinese opera in the first scene. Um, so that was a surprise. And, and I don't know, maybe we'll find out someday if, in fact, some of the scenic elements were cut back at the last minute. Um, but the other thing is, I, I was, although I liked Jin Ha very much as Song Li Ling, I, I thought he was excellent. And I thought he was intriguingly quite masculine, which uh, lends another level to the play as to uh, how much Gallimard knows and how much he doesn't know, how much he wants to know, how much he's deluding himself, where he falls on the uh, sexual orientation spectrum. So that that's kind of intriguing. Uh, some people may not think it works, but I, 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 uh, I thought it was intriguing. Uh, but to me, um, Clive Owen was extremely disappointing as Gallimard. I thought he was, it was a very dry and flat performance, very controlled. I remember John Lithgow just being, just being consumed with his emotions and his love for this uh, man or woman. Uh, and that was not here. This was a much more academic, um, dry performance and I don't think it worked. Uh, so I also wonder if it was how much of it was in acting choice and how much was a directorial choice but whatever i really i really did not like it so that was a major disappointment for me uh plus the visuals and i'm not sure that the rewrites were necessary i i i really am not sure uh, people will have different opinions on that as well so um that's that's m butterfly and uh it's by the way they have uh in the in the playbill, they have an ad for the Metropolitan Opera production of Madame Butterfly, which is also uh, figures heavily in the in the commentary. Uh, Wang comments on on the opera as well as this this real true story of of these two people. Uh, and the, yeah, there's much talk about the opera and the the, the, the way the Asian women are, and Asians in general are viewed in the opera, and, and people will find that interesting. So um, so. You can. Uh, I recommend that you see Madama Butterfly at the Met, even if you don't see M Butterfly. So let me just leave it at that. All right. Uh, the Times had an interesting story about uh, Bohem at the Met and uh, and the updating of it. And we're going to have to talk about that in the future. We'll have to uh, see if we'll bring in somebody else other than. Michael that Michael can chat with about opera because certainly I have no expertise in that area. Jenna, do you have any opera expertise? Uh, very little. I performed in an opera company as a teenager, but that's about it. <laughs> so, and I uh, never did Madame Butterfly, so no, sorry. <laughs> all right. Okay, so uh, next up, uh, Michael and I both got a chance to see Torch Song at Second Stage. Uh, so, uh, Michael, do you want to go first? Or you want me to go first? What do you, what's your druthers? Um, I'll, I'll go first. I, okay. this is another, uh, yeah, uh, another new production uh, of an older play. 
in which I was disappointed. Uh, but in this case, it seems I'm in the extreme minority, maybe not so much with M. Butterfly. I think Michael Yuri is one of the most talented actors on the planet. I have loved him in everything, and I did not believe him in this role for a minute, this role of Arnold Beckoff, which uh, was written by Harvey Firestein for himself uh, way back in. I guess uh, originally these these well, what is now being presented as Torch Song uh, at Second Stage was originally originally three one-act plays that uh, that were done at various times off or off off Broadway with you know written by and starring Harvey Firestein. The uh, the then they were eventually put together as Torch Song trilogy, which I uh, first saw off Broadway when it had uh, Har- well, Harvey was of course still in it and it had Estelle Getty as his mother and uh, Matthew Broderick in the role of David. So that was really something to see. I think that, I think that was the first time the three plays were put together and then they moved to Broadway for, for a great run, a great success. So uh, that was, that was really something to be there for that. I have to say, I'm, I'm so glad I was there. And that the Broadway, uh, the original Broadway production was 1982. So that's the time frame we're talking about here. Um, and Arnold Beckoff is uh, very much modeled after Harvey Firestein in terms of personality and, and in many other ways. He's a, a, a drag queen, a drag performer who's who's looking for love and, and uh, finds it kind of rather difficult to find it, especially as a gay man in those days uh, and in New York City. Um, But I don't know. I just and I I, I was very careful about making sure that I was not demanding a Harvey Firestein copy in seeing this new production of the play, because that would be unfair. But but then I reminded myself that I have seen uh, Torch Song Trilogy, as it used to be called, done, uh, performed by two other performers in the role of Arnold Beckoff. One was Jonathan Hidari, uh, who succeeded Harvey on Broadway. And the other one was James Lacine, who did a production that I saw up in Provincetown. I, I know Seth Radetzky did a production a year or two ago in Brooklyn that unfortunately I missed because I would have liked to see him in it. So... Um, I don't know. There were there are just aspects of the role that I I just I don't think Michael Yuri pulled it off. I I it, nothing s- seemed organic as far as his accent and his personality to me. I I just felt he was acting and very skillfully. Uh, you know, of course, in terms of his comedic talent and his dramatic talent. But I didn't I didn't buy it. I, I really didn't. And as I said, again, I think I'm in this in the extreme minority here. Uh, I, I do think it was odd that that uh, in revising the the plays and, and cutting them down uh, for this presentation, and now it's called Tort Song, uh, that Firestein did not. Um, there were a couple of lines that uh, he really 
really could have easily cut. There was a, a reference remained to Arnold's size, meaning, you know, that he's a, a large person. And, and, and um, I mean, Michael Yuri, I guess, is fairly tall, but he's not large. He's quite thin. So I don't know why that ha- that line had to stay. And there were a couple of other lines um, uh, as well. And, and it, in fact, even in reference to some of the other characters. So I was disappointed in, in that uh I was, I'll be interested to hear James' thoughts on it. And, and especially, uh, James, I'll be interested to see if this was the first production of it that you'd seen. Uh, but that's what I felt. I thought the direction by Moises Kaufman was generally poor. I felt a lot of the times the actors were disconnected from their lines, especially this fellow Ward Horton, who plays Ed, who's, uh, the, I guess, the main person in Arnold's life. Um, I thought Mercedes Rule, it's always wonderful to see her on stage, but she too, there were a couple of lines that just did not seem like she was relating to what this woman is actually saying. And uh, then uh, the rest of the cast is Jack DeFalco, who I thought was absolutely not charming at all in the role of David, the uh, teenager who... Arnold wants to adopt. Uh, Michael Rosen played Alan, uh, who is a, a younger lover that Arnold takes at one point. And Laure- uh, Laurel, Ed's wife, was played by is played by Roxana Hope Radia. Um, one, what else? Uh, one final thing. I, I don't think that. Uh, the, well, the scenic design is by David Zinn, and I don't think we needed to have the overall title of the piece, Torch Song. Uh, above the proscenium march for the whole play, and then the individual titles of each of the of the playlets on the set of each one where they remained for, throughout the action. Uh, the first one, the first playlet, or the first act in this case, or the first scene, is called the International Stud. Uh, the second one is Fugin and Nursery, and and the third one is Widows and Children First. Um, so anyway, I. Uh, I was disappointed for those reasons, and that's that's what I felt. I, I I'm so glad that I got to see that original production, and the uh, the one in P Town was actually actually very good as well. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Michael, I I have such enormous respect for you that I have to rethink how much I like this. <laughs> well, oh no, please, as I said. I, no, I, I understand what you're saying, but I was I, I was blown away. I love this production, and this is the first production I've seen of it. I did not see the original, um, and I might have to, you know, set aside five or six hours and go to Lincoln Center to, <laughs> to watch it uh, in the film and tape, tape archive uh, to see what I missed there. I loved this production. I thought Michael Yuri was great, and I, I I didn't see it the same way that um, that you're reporting on here. Uh, and I'm very interested now to go back uh, to see if I can see the original. And it even, you know, it, it loses quite a bit when you're watching it on tape in the little uh, things um, at the sure. at the film and tape library. Sure. But you can get a, a feel for it and of course ha you know the ability to see harvey firestein in the role that he wrote for himself uh you know uh, I, I i don't think that anybody could really 
uh, ever live up to that type of standard. But I think that uh, I, I really liked Yuri, and I thought he was charming, and I thought he told the story, and it was heartbreaking and elevating at times. And uh, it took me through the whole range of emotions uh, watching this watching this piece at second stage and I didn't have a problem at all with Moises Kaufman, uh, Kaufman's direction. Uh, I, I was a little bit, I don't want to say annoyed, but I did note that perhaps we didn't need neon, uh, outlines mm. of these, of the three sets, um, persistent throughout the whole thing maybe they could have turned them off or hit them or something like that after they it was almost like uh it was almost like it was the designer rendering of the sets uh on paper and they had written the three different titles in there and somebody <laughs> forgot to take them out when they designed the sets you know what i'm saying yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we agree on one thing but yeah well yeah i mean uh it, it didn't I noted it didn't bother me too much, but um, I did think that that was probably unnecessary. Uh, but if you're going to spend a fortune on the neon, you might as well keep using it, I guess. <laughs> so uh, that's Torch Song. And um, I think that it has extended uh, one more week. Uh, so there might be a few tickets left, but it's a very hard ticket to get and it. And I don't think that they can extend again because they have another show coming in behind it. Uh, also, and... Michael Yuri has to go off to yeah. D.C. to play Hamlet, Hamlet for yeah. the Shakespeare Theater. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about that insofar as uh, a possible transfer to Broadway uh, and maybe into Second Stage's own theater at the Helen Hayes now after Lobby Hero plays uh, – but we'll we'll have to you know that was just us supposing. Um, oh, interesting. You know, yeah. Uh, you know I don't really know. Haven't heard anything. I don't know anything uh, that hasn't been announced. But uh, certainly a small production like this that's already in a similar size stage as the Helen Hayes, um, easy to move. Uh, you know, not tremendously expensive. Has high profile and it's got good reviews. <laughs> seems like it would be a natural for a limited run at their at their new space that's going to open up soon so uh i think that we are ready for jenna to tell us about a reading that she saw uh guarding the bridge uh which is a play so jenna tell us about guarding the bridge the reading that you saw Yes, uh, I had not heard of this play before by uh, Chuck Gordon. It apparently was the co-winner of the 1998 Michael Cannon Award for Best Short Play. It's about half an hour long. Uh, the play is for two people about a father and son and the lessons that are passed from generation to generation. The father is openly and very cheerfully racist, and in 1968, following the assassination of Martin Luther King, he takes his son to guard the bridge, uh, hence the title, into their town to protect his community and his family from the invading hordes of black communists that he's convinced are coming to get all of them. 
And as the father and son sit on the bridge together, the father just goes off on racist tangents and denigrating black people, denigrating communists. But later, the father insists that his son get a college education. And when the kid goes off to school, his mind is expanded and he gradually rejects his father's lessons. And the father pulls the classic, I have no son, my son is dead bit that Frankly, it feels a lot more cheesy than emotional, but the lessons are still passed on from father to son. And as the kid grows up, even without his father still being in his life, he picks up some of that bitterness and that resentment and begins finding it in himself. And it's a really interesting piece about what lessons are passed on, even if the next generation rejects rejects the con. I was rejects the text it still takes in the context. The racism was not passed on, but the bitterness was. And the play handles that really nicely. It's uh, primarily the son speaking to the audience while the father speaks to the son, until only one moment where the son actually talks to the father, and it's a very powerful bit. The play is only half an hour long, and the actors, Sorry. Tim Dowd and Scott Zimmerman do a very nice job of creating their characters in just 30 minutes and conveying their emotional bond and the complexities of their bond in a very short uh, amount of time. So they absolutely did a, a nice job there. The play also serves as a lead-in for the second half of the evening, which is a spoken word piece by an artist, a self-described, as she says, educator, singer, actor, and poet named Dawn Speaks. And the spoken word piece is just breathtaking. It is fantastic. Uh, That could be an evening in and of itself of just listening to this poet read her work talking about her experiences as a black woman in modern America uh, coming of age in the 80s and 90s and what she's learned uh, in those years and then in the Obama era and the post-Obama era how everything has changed for her. She has a beautiful piece about her thoughts on November 4th, 2008 when Obama was first elected and what that evening meant to her. And beautiful, beautiful poetry. Uh, As drama, uh, well, no, I'd say the poetry does become drama. As uh, an evening of spoken word, it's not traditional theater, but it still is very dramatic, very powerful. By the end, by the final poem, she was in tears, and I could hear some sniffling behind me in the house as well. Uh, It's a really powerful piece. There's one other evening of readings on, uh, let's see, November 1st at 8 o'clock at the American Theater of Actors upstairs on the fourth floor. It's just an hour long. So this is a a nice hour out of your life to see an interesting reading, but a really powerful evening of spoken word. And I would love to see more from uh, Dawn Speaks and to see what else she has to say her work was just really powerful and really beautiful so strongly recommended great all right so we'll have a link to that the ripple effects artists uh ripple effect artists get that correct uh we'll have a link to that in the show notes where you can see their stuff uh and get tickets to the next uh november 1st production Michael, you got over to see Marilyn May uh, for Jazz at Lincoln Center in the Appel Room. Tell us about that 
beautiful venue. Yes, I can end with a really fabulous report. Uh, four performances on Friday and Saturday, uh, October 27th and 28th. Marilyn May, the great singer who is almost 90 and was in unbelievably fabulous voice. I've seen her many times at many venues. Um, but what was extra special about this one was that it featured Ted Firth's big band, uh, 17 pieces. Uh, Ted is an incredible musical director, pianist, arranger. He did, I believe, most, if not all of the, well, most of the arrangements. Uh, some of them were Marilyn's old arrangements from back in the day. She was uh, Johnny Carson's favorite singer. She was a musical guest on The Tonight Show 76 times, as she's often uh, very uh, proud to point out, and she should be. Um, I, 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 it's, it's a phenomenon, this woman. She really was in the best voice I've ever heard. Uh, every single note um, was f fantastic, 100% on pitch. And also, I, I didn't notice even a single even a single syllable of a lyric flubbed. And she sang a lot. She did a very, very generous program in that beautiful room, the Appel Room, um, Jazz at Lincoln Center in the Time Warner Center overlooking, uh, well, um, Central Park South and the, the, the uh, southern uh, corner, northwest, uh, I'm sorry, southwest corner of the park. Um, she, uh, I mean, it's a, it's an amazing venue for anything. And when you have a performers of this caliber, it's just, it's just amazing. Uh, Marilyn did, I, I want to say it seemed like two dozen songs and a lot of, uh, she over, uh, you know, I, I would say at least 50 years, if not more of songwriting, uh, great American songbook, but, uh, uh she, she almost always has lots of Broadway uh, show songs because, of course, at one time they were central to um, popular music and the American songbook. She did uh, two Alan J. Lerner songs, On the Street Where You Live, uh, from My Fair Lady, with, with, written with Frederick Lowe, and On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, from the show of that same title, written with Burton Lane. Uh, she did No Bad News from The Wiz, Put on a Happy Face from Bye Bye Birdie, Two songs from Mame, It's Today and If He Walked Into My Life, and 50%. I, I am going to say, I have, I have heard 50% and seen uh, it, it given wonderful, beautiful performances by everyone from Dorothy Loudon, who uh, created the role in, in Ballroom, uh, the show from which that song comes. Dorothy Loudon. Uh, Beatrice Arthur, Tyne Daly, but this this was beyond anything vocally and acting wise. It was it was I, I won't say it was I, I won't say it was better than all of those, but it was in its own way absolutely as great, if not greater. So I'm privileged to have been at this at uh, one of these performances, and I I. I'm so, so happy that that Marilyn's career is continuing at, at, at this age. And 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 it's such an incredibly high level. It's it's almost hard to describe it. That's so great to hear, Michael. Um, you know, every time I I see Marilyn doing something else, I'm so happy 
that she's still out there and singing oh, yeah. and and doing this and to hear you say she's in such good voice that just warms my heart yeah it's a cold rainy morning <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it really says something not just for the uh, for her skill as a performer, but it also says something to her training and how she's taking care of her voice, not blowing it out with high belting and you know, all kinds of tricks. She's maintained her instrument, and she's still going strong. I, she's got to be, what, the late 80s at this point? Yes, oh, yes, very close to 90. Yeah, and she can still go strong and do so well. She's really taking good care of her instrument, and that's wonderful. It's uh, it, it's a note that we should all take. Keep active. Yes. Keep, <laughs> keep, keep active. active. I see on the uh, Jazz at Lincoln Center website, there's a photo of her dodging taxis on the on a busy Midtown street. So. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> yeah. That's great. All right, so before we get on to trivia and wrap up today, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of Broadway Video. That way you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts. Uh, that way each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many different ways. iHeartRadio plays us, TuneIn plays us, Google Play has us, uh, Stitcher, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts. Uh, contact information for Jenna, for Michael, and for me can be found at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, drop in here for a second and give us an answer to last week's trivia question. Well, the question was, what do these musicals have in common? Anastasia, Ernest in Love, Let It Ride, Oh Brother, and Seventeen. And Carrie Winslow said, oh, that's such an easy question. I mean, you know, uh, everybody's going to get it. He was the only one to get it. So anyway, the answer is that all were adapted into musicals long before these shows ever came to pass. Anastasia was preceded by Wright and Forrest's Anya in 1965, Oh Brother by Rogers and Hart's The Boys from Syracuse, Let It Ride by Vernon Duke and John Latouche's Banjo Eyes, starring Eddie Cantor, by the way, Seventeen by Hello Lola, and Ernest in Love by Oh Ernest. So that was the uh, answer to last week's question. This week's question, which two characters who were in Tony winning musicals and won Tony's themselves for their roles have the same initials, the same outlooks, outlook towards the female sex and more patter songs than ballads? Okay. If you know the answer to that, email us at trivia@broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of... Michael Portantia, Janetessa Fox, and Peter Felicia. This is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway videos this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.